All right, well, thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm Lawrence Wright, uh, and uh, I'm an author here in Austin. Uh, and I want to welcome you to the um, Texas Tribune Festival. This panel is America's Place in the World. And uh, we have two experts on that subject here. Um, one is, to my immediate right, uh, Congressman Michael McCall from one of Austin's many congressional districts, uh, the 10th <laughs> district. Um, I actually live here, though. Uh, that's true. There, they, there's <laughs> something to be said about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mike uh, is, uh, he, he began his career in the Justice Department, I could say. Uh, I was asking each of these men about transformative moments in their lives uh, beyond just where they went to school and so on. And for Mike, it was, uh, he was in the main justice in Washington uh, in 1993 when the World Trade Center was bombed the first time. And uh, he was already in the counterterrorism business. So this was, you know, you got to start on this long before most Americans were aware of the danger. It's, we're fortunate to have him as uh, the head of the Homeland Security Committee now few people in Congress would have as much personal experience as he. Um, and uh, he is uh, being talked about uh, as the uh, next speaker uh, of the House. Uh, speculation he's done nothing to quell. Uh, <laughs> I think so, it's a very dangerous proposition to be called the next speaker. But uh, I, well, I, I did your call, Mike. I'm not. <laughs> And uh, we're also graced by uh, Senator Tim Kaine, the junior, junior senator of Virginia, who is um, in, a, in a time when politicians are sometimes disparaged. This is, his career has been almost a textbook sent uh, from city council in Richmond to mayor to lieutenant governor to governor to senator. And we're all wondering what the next rung on that ladder might be. Um, when, when Tim was at Harvard Law School, uh, he had a moment of when his other classmates were applying for Wall Street jobs and so on, and he didn't know what he's going to do with his life. So he went as a Jesuit missionary to Honduras, uh, which in many respects reframed his life, I think, and, and uh, created a passion for social justice that is manifest in his politics. So. We're, we have two very interesting guests here to talk about this, and they're both Jesuits, so we, uh, <laughs> we may get Jesuitical in this discussion. So, gentlemen, we have an hour to solve all the problems in the world, and uh, let's say it is Friday, January 20th, 2017, and the newly inaugurated President Trump <laughs> calls you the apprentice Secretary of State into his office and says, what's tops on our list? What is top on our list right now? Mike, you start. Well, it's hard to uh, say one particular. I think with respect to threats to the homeland, and, and there are many, and I think the world has become more dangerous um, by the foreign policy that I've seen. Um, obviously, ISIS is the number one threat to the homeland, the chaos in uh, the Middle East, <clears throat> the aggression uh, that we've seen uh, Russia uh, exert. Putin, I think, is flexing his muscle. It's a big geopolitical power play on, on his part. And, I, you know, the heroes of my political heroes I have are uh, Churchill, who defeated fascism, uh, to Kennedy, uh, and to Reagan, who defeated uh, communism. And now we have another threat of Islamist extremism that, as you know, probably better than anybody, has become a global phenomenon. Um, I've seen it spread uh, since the fall of the, uh, well, since the Arab Spring. We've seen power vacuums being created all throughout Northern Africa and the Middle East, and these vacuums have been filled by uh, safe harbors for, for terrorists uh, and Islamist extremists. Uh, and now we're seeing Russia filling the power vacuum in, in, in Syria, which we could talk probably for 30 minutes about that mm -hmm. as well. But I, I, I don't think I've seen the threat environment uh, higher since 9-11. Um, and certainly the dangers that are out there 
Uh, overall, fundamentally, I think weakness invites aggression. The Churchill talked about appeasement a lot, and if we don't lead as a superpower in the post-World War II era, I think uh, if we just retreat and isolate from the world, I think uh, it creates a more dangerous uh, place for the United States. Well, let me press you a little bit on this. You mentioned Syria and Russia's involvement in it. Um, the, Russia is 600 miles away from Syria, the border. It's a distance between here and El Paso. So Russia obviously has an interest in uh, what's going on in Syria. It has one of its very few foreign bases in Syria. Uh, what do you think, what do you make of their involvement in Syria? And, and does it, uh, as an American, do you think that we have common interests with Russia in that region? It's hard to trust Russia. I think the only thing we do have in common is, you know, the Chechen rebels are a threat to them. Boston Bomber is a Chechen rebel. Um, if anything could come out of this, if we could coordinate and unify to defeat ISIS, the problem is, uh, Larry, the only target packages they have demonstrated to hit are, are non-ISIS related, but rather the re very rebel forces that could defeat uh, ISIS, and, um, and they're propping up Assad. Yeah. <clears throat> the strategy that we have been looking at, of course, it's been a failed strategy in terms of training um, Sunni Arabs to fight the Sunni extremists. But ultimately, if you you have to have, in addition to airstrikes, the ground force. And so when I went to whether it was Israel or Baghdad or Turkey, where is this ground force going to come from? It's got to be a Sunni Arab ground force against the Sunni extremists. It's their backyard. It's their religion. But they would tell me, uh, the Arab League, League of Nations, essentially, that they would, they're not going to commit to that unless we have a strategy and Assad's part of the, the equation, part of mm -hmm. the solution. Now with Russia in there propping up Assad, uh, it makes that, that premise far more difficult to achieve. Um, and I think the failure uh, to act and inaction has created uh, even more chaos that's going to inflame the Sunni Arab world even more as we see the Shia coalescence between Russia Iraq, the Shia militants are there, sort of mm. filling the space, um, uh, also all the way uh, into Syria now with Assad. So you're going to see this sectarian Shia-Sunni conflict, I think, uh, uh, even intensify even, even more. Uh, Senator Kane, the, Russia's uh, President Putin said uh, when he was trying to create some sort of alliance with the United States that we were so resistant. He said the American leaders have mush for brains. And uh, he even has a, a hotline to Israel to keep, you know, from crossing lines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and when President Obama was asked about that, he said that uh, uh, if running your country into debt and, uh, and sending ground troops into your, the only ally you have in the world is leadership, then we have a different idea of what that right. constitutes. Right. So from your perspective, how does this affect our relationship in Syria and in the region? Yeah, and you know, actually, I'd love to kind of answer the first question okay, and then, yeah, you're and then welcome get into to, it. Yeah. Um, Mike didn't say anything I strongly disagree with in terms of if you're going to go first, what are the challenges? Let me come at it from a different angle, because in my first answer, I think one of our challenges is we don't really have a strategy, that we're kind of dealing with, a, with problems one at a time. We had a doctrine, a national security doctrine, when Truman went to Congress and said, you're going to hate me for saying this, but we got to help Greece deal with the Soviet Union. We're war-weary, but we're still going to have to help. That began the Truman Doctrine, and that really was a, an overarching policy doctrine uh, that we were checking off against the Soviet Union all around the globe. It not only defined what we did militarily, but it would define things like why we did the Peace Corps, why we went to the moon. Like or to hate that doctrine, that was the doctrine until the Soviet Union collapsed. In the late Bush, first Bush, and then the Clinton administrations, we went out of a doctrine into what I call kind of a case-by-case. And being pragmatic in case by case is not all bad because it's hard to have a rule that applies to all situations. But the problem is when you go case by case, you look back and you say, wait a minute, why did we act so aggressively in the Balkans and we didn't do anything to stop the slaughter in Rwanda? And the answer that you know, kind of suggests itself is not a particularly pretty one. After the attack on 9-11, we went back to a doctor in the war on terror. But I, but I think while terrorism is still a massive threat that in some ways is multiplying, I do think that 15 years since 9-11 has taught us that 
the war on terror isn't a big enough doctrine for a nation as big as ours, for a nation as magnanimous as ours, because it often doesn't pull into account not just military strength, but diplomatic strength, humanitarian strength, strength of the moral example, trade. All these things have to be part of a package. So I think we've kind of, while, while battling terrorism every day, I think we've sort of slipped back into kind of case-by-casism. And so probably the first thing I would challenge a President Trump or any president is, if you're going to be here for a while, and I challenge my, you know, we in Congress have to be part of this. What's the way we look at the world in the early part of the 21st century? What's our sort of doctrine? So here's the way I look at it as I analyze situations in Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committee member. I kind of go back to the Truman. We're not a bipolar world now. We're kind of a tripolar world. We've got the democracies. And, you know, and the good news is they're all over the globe. We're about to be without war in the Americas for the first time in the, the recorded history of mankind if the negotiation with the FARC in Colombia gets to an end. That doesn't mean there aren't huge challenges in the Americas, but there will not be war in the Americas as we can get to that point. So there are democracies all over the globe, and we're the leading democracy. We can partner with all of them, but we, we have to see democracies are frayed. I mean, we see anti-Semitism in democracies. We see financial challenges. We see England may jump out of the EU. So we're seeing challenges. So on the democracy side, we've got to be about shoring up the democracies, playing our role with the democracy, shoring them up. And we have authoritarians, the Soviet, I mean, Soviet Union, Russia, Iran, North Korea, China, Turkey to some degree. They're very different nations, but they're all kind of doing a historical rejuvenation project and trying to project backwards to a better past in some ways mm -hmm. rather than forwards. With the authoritarians, we sort of have to challenge them, confront them, compete with them, sometimes cooperate with them. Because as you mentioned, the, the Russian concern about ISIL and foreign fighters right. coming back to Chechnya, in the U.S.-Russia Venn diagram, there's a tiny little overlap there with the concern about terrorism. Mm -hmm. And then the third pole in the world right now is the non-states. So we, we shore up the democracies, we cha skillfully challenge the authoritarians, and on the non-states, we, we do have to defeat them because they do pose an existential threat to the sort of post-World War II um, rules, norms, and and institutions that really have been good for us and been good for, for all. That defeat is not just a military defeat. It's, it, it takes a multilateral effort. And it's, you know, it, it's a lot of uh, anti-radicalization efforts and things that you know, Mike was working on back in the, in the day when he was in the, in the Justice Department. But um, the, the first thing a president, I think, needs is they need a, a doctrine to explain to the American people, here's how we look at the world yeah. right now, and here's what, what American power should be. Because if we just keep doing one-off decisions on, well, here's ISIL, we got to do this, and oh, wow, now we got to send, this week the president sent troops to Cameroon yeah. to, to, mm -hmm. to engage against Boko Haram. Right. If we just keep going one-off, it's going to be a very confusing, expensive muddle. Well, the world throws these muddles in your direction, and, you know, uh, to dwell on Syria and Iraq for a moment, um, the Assad regime poses no threat to the United States. Um, radical Islam certainly does, uh, but there is a there's a threat that's maybe greater than either of those that we're actually in the middle of, which is the refugee crisis. Um, the just to reflect historically. Uh, 1948, 750,000 Palestinians fled or were chased out of Israel and have never really been absorbed uh, into the, to the rest of the world community. And look at all the despair that's come out of that. Now there are 4 million Syrians on the road outside of their country, not counting the 11 million that are inside. displaced inside. And they join a larger refugee community, 15 million people, greater than any time since World War II. And, you know, so you have 2 million Syrians in Turkey, you have uh, nearly a million in Jordan, you have one out of four people in Lebanon is Syrian, and then you see hundreds of thousands of people streaming into Europe. Now, that poses a challenge uh, to the whole region and to the West, and how do you propose that we deal with it? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, do you want to, I, how about if I go first go, on this Yeah, one you go first. Yeah. And you can critique my answer. So, um, 
first, I mean, the U, you know, the U.S. has a responsibility here. We, we, have, we have a responsibility, and other nations do too. Now, the U.S., let's start with what we are doing. We are the biggest provider of humanitarian relief in the world to Syrian refugees outside of Syria, $4 billion and climbing, and that's not by accident. That's something that the administration, Congress has done, so that's a positive. But, but we're going to see more and more, and uh, something that I think we should do and I wasn't originally a supporter of this. Uh, I'm on Armed Services Center. McCain is my chair. and He was advocating it right from the start. I wasn't so sure it was a good idea. But by about early 2014, I basically said, look, I think the numbers of migrants coming out are going to just continue to explode, and that's what's happened. We, we should take the two UN Security Council resolutions that have been passed, that the Russians chose not to veto, um, for a variety of reasons. They didn't veto these two that call for cross-border delivery of humanitarian aid into Syria without the consent of the Syrian government. And we should premise our involvement in Syria around the implementation of those two humanitarian resolutions to include, in my opinion, working even to provide military support for a safe zone in northern Syria on the Turkish border. If, if there would be a place in Syria where people could flee ISIL, Assad, cholera, uh, hunger, um, and know that they could get necessities of life without leaving their country and they would be safe, that would be far better for them. It would be far better, in my view, in advancing the day when there could be some negotiated outcome of that civil war, and it would be far better for the countries that are having to absorb these significant refugees. Now, that would not be easy because putting any military assets, and it would obviously be a coalition of nations, and the Turks have expressed a willingness to be deeply involved in this. But it would take military assets, including military assets of the U.S. But it would be a defined mission to support these U.N. Security Council resolutions, similar to other similar missions we've done in the past, and it would stop this flow. Even with 4 million people gone, the problem is the 8 to 11 million people that are still displaced inside Syria yeah. who could leave. So I don't think it's too late to do this. And yeah. that's what I would urge on. I have urged it on this president. They haven't, they haven't uh, agreed uh, yet, but I still think that we could do this. I think that uh, I agree with the senator. I think there's a lot of bipartisan support for this idea of creating a safe haven uh, within Syria. It may take a no-fly zone, which gets yeah. a little risky with the Russians because mm -hmm. we're at cross purposes right, right now, and, and their people are getting hurt, uh, and a lot of our human assets as well. Um, I've actually I went to the camp in Jordan, and it's one of the greatest humanitarian crises uh, we've probably seen in our lifetime. Um, and um, the millions, not only in Jordan, but in Turkey, uh, I met with the Hungarians last week. They said, you know, now they said, unlike what the media is uh, presenting, that 80% of them are military-aged males, and they're very concerned from a security standpoint. Mm -hmm. I think Europe has been very generous to accept a lot of these refugees, but they're also going through a, a cultural identity problem and, and a potential uh, threat um, as well. <clears throat> they're all fleeing Assad, you know. They all, they don't right. like Assad, but they're caught in the middle between ISIS and Assad. They're in a really bad spot. Right. Yeah. And so fundamentally, if, if, I think it has, it's a creation of a, a failure in, in policy uh, to deal with the region, not just, as you point out, not just militarily, but politically, to reconcile uh, the situation uh, on the ground. And it's not going to stop until we get to the core of the problem, and, and that is the, the political uh, dysfunctionality and, and, and lack of a military strategy to deal with both ISIS and, and Assad. And I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it's gotten far more complicated now with the Russian presence. I commissioned the Government Accountability Office to study the vetting process of these uh, Syrian refugees. Um, when I was in Jordan, the Minister of Security told me that, he said, the problem is I just don't know who they are. And we don't have any, the FBI testified before my committee, we don't have any uh, databases to vet them against, we don't have any systems in place, we don't really have, we're gaining human intelligence and others in Syria, but really not sufficient to know who these people are. And I think as a chairman of Homeland Security, I also look at the safety of the American people bringing sure. these uh, refugees in. And if we're going to do it, I think we need to do it right and have a proper uh, vetting process in place. Uh, we've had experience in our recent history with massive numbers of political refugees. After the fall of Vietnam, we brought in 175,000 former you know, military and political figures. And then there was a Cuban uh, boat lift, not to mention the, the boat people out of 
uh, hundreds of thousands, and Marilitos were 150,000, mm -hmm. I think, including some people that Castro had thrown in from the prisons and the mental mm -hmm. institutions who did cause trouble. But uh, for the most part, our country did a good job of absorbing those people. Uh, don't we have some sort of moral obligation to take in our share? It seems like our share would be far greater than the modest increase that uh, President Obama has suggested. I, I would say, I mean, we, we've been a compassionate nation, and uh, again, if we have the assurance we can properly vet it, the, the crisis in Europe is they're not vetted at all, and they yeah. are crossing by land you know, into Europe without having any vetting process uh, you know, what, whatsoever. We did take some in Iraq when we had good intelligence there, and t some of them turned out to be, uh, had killed Americans and were actually terrorists. So I think yeah. it's a balance of compassion and, and security and, and doing it the right way. And working on this humanitarian zone in northern Syria could actually help in that yeah. vetting process because the absence of U.S. intel and background information about folks is a, is a legit issue. Now, there will be, you know, women and kids that are around whom that vetting is not such a significant challenge that we can agree on. But if we had some space that was controlled uh, internationally, there could be vetting done and people could be there. And then if they want, if you do that safe zone, that's not to pro then prohibit people from going elsewhere. But you could use a humanitarian zone as, as part of that vetting yeah. process. Because you're right, the Vietnamese example is such a good example. Um, you know, that, that, what a... What a scarring war for the United States and for Vietnam. And it's not like there weren't challenges when Vietnam, you know, right. Vietnamese came to Texas or Virginia right out of the gate after the war, but it's been such a powerful community and wonderful community. Yeah. And we've shown the ability to make it work. You know, it doesn't happen immediately. We've shown the ability to make it work. I have a personal love of the idea of, of using a lot of Syrian refugees to repopulate Detroit. Which is a heavily, a, heavily, it's heavily Arab community, yeah. and and, uh, and there, there's housing available, even mm -hmm. inner city farming. If you, if you, there's a vacant skyscraper I visited. So you know, uh, we we have uh, just like a lot of Western nations a need for that kind of. Uh, if I could add, I, I think one of the disappointments here, though, is that you know there's Sunni Arabs uh, fleeing from Assad, the Shia. Mm -hmm. And refugee, by definition, is one who's seeking refugee status but wants to return home. I think the majority mm -hmm. of these Syrians would like to stay in their home yeah. country once the conflict is reconciled, if it ever is. Yeah. And so I think one of the biggest disappointments is, you know, the Europeans have been very generous, but the Gulf states, you know, have the, the wherewithal, mm -hmm. the financial wherewithal, to take in these, they're, and they're Sunni Arabs, yeah. to take them into to, to Saudi and UAE and the other Gulf state nations and to provide that um, humanitarian assistance until the conflict's resolved and they can return back. I think once they're in the United States or in Europe, they'll probably never come back. And Germany open its arms and they can go to there and Scandinavia where they uh, uh, can get pretty good uh, assistance. Um, and so, that's unfortunate <clears throat> that, the, that the Saudis completely snubbed their nose and turned yeah. their backs on these people. It sure is. Let's talk a little bit about Iran. Uh, I know each of you was, you were on different sides about uh, the, uh, the Iran Accord. But I wonder if right now, since the deal is done, tomorrow, I think, is the day that it actually takes effect. They begin to dismantle the centrifuges and so on. So we're on the eve of the new era, whatever it is. Uh, how do you think this is going to turn out, Mike? Verification's key. Uh, I, had, I had concerns, as you know, with, uh, with the executive action and uh, on several points. They, they can, I, I agree, they do wind it down, but they can still continue enriching uranium. When I met Netanyahu in Israel, well, you know his position. He's very worried about his neighbor uh, next door. We have the Quds Force commander now in Syria with Iranian troops. Um, the ICBM capability that, to deliver a nuclear warhead across continents, the Ayatollah says we will, uh, we will move forward uh, and, and full steam ahead. Mm -hmm. The hundreds of billions of dollars freed in sanctions that will go to the largest state sponsor of terrorism. Um, if over the 10 years this de-escalates, that, that would be great. But I've got my concerns about verification. This is a country that has continued to cheat uh, against uh, the international community. Mm -hmm. And whether we can properly verify, we have these two, 
these IAEA deals with Iran that were secret that we couldn't even see in the Congress. Uh, and when I asked Secretary Kerry if he had seen them, he said, no, but I've been briefed on them. And then when the AP reports, it calls for self-inspection. So I, I have a lot of questions about, about this one. I think uh, Netanyahu described to us that, you know, you're worried about ISIS, but they're, they're a bunch of guys in trucks with AK-47s. You're talking about a, mil, uh, a nuclear power uh, potentially in the Middle East. Um, that's his great concern. And the final piece is the potential escalation of a nuclear arms race in the Middle East because the Saudis, when I was there, even though publicly they went along with the administration, privately were telling me that, you know, they said, why are you negotiating with Iran? And we're not going to sit back and watch Iran go nuclear. We're going to do that as well with the Pakistani assistance. So there, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, and I understand both sides of this argument, but I, I have I have my concerns. Just real quick, um, why I uh, supported the deal pretty strongly, but then I'm going to acknowledge some of Mike's concerns. Um, I strongly pushed and helped write with Senator Corker of Tennessee the act that gave Congress the review role that we uh, spent 60 days after the deal was put on the table in mid-July. The White House, the president, who I'm very close to, said, I'm going to veto that bill, do not do that. And I said, no, Congress should get a role in this. Uh, but once the deal was on the table, I urged my colleagues to uh, allow the deal to go forward because I felt like um, not really it, it was better than alternatives. Alternatives are sort of hypotheticals, and you can make up the alternative to kind of justify your position. I felt it was better than the status quo. So uh, Iran had 20,000 centrifuges, 12,000 kilograms of enriched uranium, uh, a heavy water plutonium processing plant, and we didn't have many inspections. And as Prime Minister Netanyahu said at the UN in 2012, thanks, Globe, for doing the sanctions program. The sanctions are really working against Iran, but it's not stopping the nuclear program. So if we had not done the deal, the status quo was they have all this infrastructure in place, we'll go back to doing sanctions, and they'll go back to rocketing ahead. And I just felt like that path was going to lead us into a very bad place. So a deal that for 15 years basically scales back centrifuges by two-thirds, enriched uranium by 98%, disables permanently the heavy water plutonium processing facility and gives us deep inspections that we wouldn't have otherwise, to me, seems like something that we should do, recognizing that the verification issues are going to be challenging going forward. But, but what I'll say is every concern that Mike put on the table is right. So I guess what I would say is this. Mike prays that I'm right, and I'm afraid that he's right, <laughs> right? So he prays that I'm right, that, that there is a diplomatic end to the Iranian nuclear program. They won't have nuclear weapons, and we can achieve that diplomatically. Yeah. I'm afraid that he's right in what he said about the trustworthiness or cheating factor on the Iranian side. But if he's right, if he's right, we will face a day where we will have to make a decision about whether we use military action against Iran to stop them from getting a nuclear weapon. And if we face that day, I want to be able to look the American public and our troops in the face and say, we tried diplomacy first. Because if we'd walked away from the table, we would face that day, and I'd have to look them in the face and say, well, now we may have to use military action. Wait, didn't you have a diplomatic opportunity right there before you, and you walked away from the table? I want the focus to be on Iranian behavior, not on uh, American negotiating tactics. This is a deal now, and you know we just have, uh, a bunch of us on the Senate side just wrote a letter to Secretary Kerry challenging some hardliners in Iran with some uh, anti-ballistic missile testing. Right. And, and Samantha Power at the UN said, yeah, well, this looks like it clearly violates yeah. human rules. We're gonna have to stay on them every time about cheating. Because Iran it has political divisions just like we do. There's hardliners that wanna undo this deal, and there's reformers who wanna keep the deal in place. But uh, let's keep the focus on their behavior, not our negotiating tactics. But, but you know, you, you could be right. And, and, if, and if you are right, we're going to face a tough day down the road. I, I pray that And the train's out of the station. Uh, it's unfortunate the Senate did, didn't have an opportunity to even vote on the court. Well, we, no, we voted on uh, it. But, but, well, we voted on it twice. The, the 60 vote rule, but we won't mm -hmm. get into that. But I, I think what we have in common here is now the train is out of the station, what are the consequences mm -hmm. in, in, if they violate? Mm -hmm. What are the consequences if they don't allow uh, access? And then so with all the talk about Iran, I was always puzzled that nobody talked about Pakistan, where, uh, you know, this is our ally uh, who used American taxpayer money in part to finance their secret nuclear program, and they sold 
uh, nuclear technology to Iran, to uh, Libya, to North Korea. North Korea. They are a nuclear proliferator. They have never, like Iran, signed the nuclear non-proliferation tax. This is our ally, and we're supporting them. And uh, what lesson do you draw from that? Well, we all know who, who developed it uh, in Pakistan and then proliferated. You're right to Iran and North Korea, and that's the problem. I mean, and there were no consequences to that. Yeah. And that's that that's a great problem that we're in right now. You know, it's <laughs> is Pakistan an ally? I mean, it goes back to that fundamental question. Sometimes people question the Saudis as well. But you know, I was in Pakistan just right after we killed Osama bin Laden and flew over Abbottabad, and, and there was a lot of anger and embarrassment uh, in Pakistan. But what happened, we met with the president of Pakistan, Zadari, who said, I talk to your CIA all the time in my country, and they never told me that bin Laden was here. Now, whether he was telling me the truth, I don't know, but when he's being harbored in West Point Academy, essentially, in Pakistan, yeah. the Lola, I, I can't believe that the ISI guys, the local intelligence yeah. didn't know about his whereabouts. They've been a very precarious ally yeah. and a difficult one that at mm -hmm. times we need. And I think that the, the key is now, I mean, now that they have it, once a, a nuclear power, once they have it, they have it, then the, the, the challenge is to secure it. And so that's why we do give, uh, uh, we do assist the Pakistan military because they're the only thing that's going to stop the extremists from getting access to those nuclear weapons and pro proliferating them. There is a legitimate homeland security threat of some one of these devices being transported out and brought into the United States. Uh, they're not that terribly all that large, mm -hmm. and, and, and it mm -hmm. could be done. So that securing those sites uh, is really what we've been primarily focused on. Um, the, the Pakistan relationship is very challenged, but I, my sense is um, that the arc is going in a better direction. So I was in Pakistan about a year ago, and the, there had been huge uh, street protests against the civilian government of Pakistan. And in the past, those kind of protests would have led the military to jump in and say, okay, we're resuming control. Um, General Rahil Sharif, who is not related to Prime Minister Sharif, uh, basically did not jump in and say the military would take control. The military played a role in trying to keep the protests within some bounds, but the military did not jump in and seize control back from the civilian government. In addition, the military is waging a pretty tough campaign against some of the terrorist networks, uh, mm -hmm. Haqqani network in the tribal areas in Pakistan. There's always been this concern, as was indicated, of kind of being double-dealt in Pakistan. Are they protecting terrorists within? Or are they going after it? You saw the big bombing of the school in Pakistan, in Peshawar, um, in 2015, and that was pushed back against a government because the government was going after uh, folks that they had maybe not gone after so aggressively. So it, it would it's a long way to go to say the relationship is where we want it. And you're right, the low moment was, you know, uh, either either they did not know that uh, Osama bin Laden was in Abbottabad, and that's a horrible thing to contemplate, or they didn't know and they were sheltering him, and that's a horrible thing to contemplate. So that was the, the, the low moment in the relationship. But I do think the arc has been positive, especially in about the last 18 months. And so we just need to do what we can to keep nudging it that way. Well, let's keep moving in that general direction. We'll come to China. Uh, the Obama administration has, you know, tried to affect this tilt to the Pacific uh, countries, and uh, China has—it's um, just been extraordinary to watch the growth of that yeah. that country. Fifty percent of all the building that's going on in the world is taking place in China. Their investments in underdeveloped countries is, you know, like they own sixty percent of the arable land in Tanzania. It's just, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're, it's, it's an astonishing new fact that we're dealing with. And I think we're all puzzled about how to deal with an aggressive, powerful new competitor. And so when we greet our new president, uh, what would you advise him about how to handle China? Well, I mean, similar, we're seeing the similar thing with Russian expansion of power. Um, again, I don't think they view that we're going to stop them, so they're going to continue to expand. China, in a similar role, they've been very aggressive in the Pacific, as you know, um, with some of these some of these islands uh, and trying to take over and expand uh, into that area, uh, which gives them more geopolitical influence throughout the world. They are 
uh, investing in so many different countries, as you mentioned, in Africa particularly. When I look at China, the biggest concern I have from a threat standpoint is uh, the cybersecurity mm -hmm. operations. Mm -hmm. uh, this OPM breach was one of the largest, it was the largest act of, of espionage in the cyber world against the United States. Stealing 20 million security clearances, including mine, with the fingerprints, with sensitive uh, data and information. It's interesting, those two attacks, the Anthem and Blue Cross, uh, Blue Shield attacks, originate to the same source that the OPM breach goes mm -hmm. back to in China, mm -hmm. and yet they're denying that they had any in involvement yeah. with it. It's a big data theft of information. And this shows, demonstrates that they're getting very uh, sophisticated in their cyber warfare capabilities. Uh, this is primarily an espionage operation. You don't do that unless, you're not doing that for criminal purposes, you're not making money off it. You're doing it to exploit the data to compromise people in the federal government mm -hmm. for espionage purposes. Therefore, I believe this was a nation state attack by mm -hmm. the government of China, even though they're denying this happened. And, and Larry, what has been the consequence there? Now, Secretary Johnson called me after the, the leader of China came in, they met, and they're gonna start a, a working group, if you will, and yeah. that's great to have this dialogue. But can you trust you know, the Chinese with this? They steal so much intellectual property. It, intellectual property culturally doesn't mean anything to them. And it's hard to compete when we play by the rules and they don't. And then there's no response. There's no proportionate response in this world. An act of cyber warfare is not legally defined. Right. And how mm -hmm. do you respond to the China or the Iran who's hitting their financial uh, sector or the Sony attack by North Korea, which was a malicious, destructive right. attack? This is, it's not the, the future of warfare, it's, it's here now. And China's one of the biggest espionage offenders and right now they're getting away with it. It's like my five kids, I have five teenagers, right? So yeah. I have some domestic terrorism issues of my own. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but if there are no consequences to the actions, they're gonna continue their bad behavior. And that's, that's kind of- Well, let me ask you about that. I, when I was writing about the intelligence community, uh, one of my sources said that um, there are 40,000, and the Chinese army has 40,000 English speaking hackers. Uh, we should never get into a cyber war with the Chinese, because how many Mandarin-speaking hackers do we have? Uh, so you, you bring up the pro problem, What's your, how would you address it? You well, yeah, yeah. I, I think we have to have rules of the game. Um, I think we need to define by treaty, uh, have NATO standards applied to this. This is the new frontier with no rules of the game. And I think the idea of what is proportionate response, what is an appropriate response to an act of espionage or an act of cyber warfare, warfare by a nation state. And I think uh, you have to give some flexibility to the executive, but it has to be a proportionate cyber with potentially kinetic response to that. Um, I understand what you're saying. We got a lot of trade issues with China. Yeah. And, um, and you have to be very delicate in your balance with this, but if you have no response, uh, at all. I mean, the, the rest of the world doesn't play, they don't play by the rules and they will respond if mm -hmm. they see an attack. I mean, Russia invading Estonia, shutting down Estonia. Um, you know, we all know what happened with Stuxnet. You see the power of cyber. Our offensive capability is tremendous, but that turned against us, could shut down power grids in the Northeast, yeah. the energy sector, uh, hit the stock exchange and cause economic chaos. These are all the things that keep me up at night. You know, the one or two man ISIS guy with eight with guns, I worry about that, but this thing could cause far more consequences and damage uh, than any of the threats. Let me say cyber budget in China. So I agree with uh, what Mike was saying on cyber. We don't really have a doctrine. So we had a nuclear doctrine, the mutual assured destruction, that was a deterrence doctrine. If you took steps against us, there would be five times the consequence against you. And part of deterrence is an advertised consequence. We don't really have even a, an agreed upon consequence, much less one that we advertise. And so if you don't have a, a doctrine, uh, it, the other side, you know, who's wanting to engage in these activities will do it. And China has really switched from going after industrial espionage, like, you know, what are your weapon systems? They've switched to going after personal data. Um, within about the last 18 months to two years, they've really made this as a policy switch, which should, that should uh, tell us something about their intent. Um, budget. 
we are doing something really stupid on the budget, in my view, this budgetary caps and sequester. We, uh, Congress in, the, in August of 2011 basically said, if we can't find a grand budget deal, we will just make cuts across budgetary categories. We'll hold core war fighting harmless. We'll hold Medicaid, Medicare harmless, but we'll do core war fighting. Cyber is one of those areas that, that frankly, is getting carved back in budget caps at a time when Everybody in America would say we shouldn't be spending less on cyber, mm -hmm. we should be spending more. Yeah. So I'm really hoping that we can find the Murray-Ryan budget deal part two uh, between now and December 11, where we're not going to, at this moment of vulnerability, actually be you know, cutting our capacity to deal with the threat. <clears throat> with respect to China, how to deal with, with China. Um, one of the things we ought to be doing with China is we ought to be doing everything we can to get them to more... Uh, appropriately conform to these rules, intellectual property protection, these other international rules. They're going to cheat, they're going to push, but we've been able to move them more toward international standards in a number of ways. Um, the thing that we're doing right now that China is the most afraid of is the trade deal that we're doing with the Pacific Rim nations. They're very, very frightened of this. They're frightened of us cobbling together a Pacific Rim coalition that would have elevated standards for worker protections, elevated standards for environmental protections for intellectual property, but also would just amass more nations in a trading environment. Um, but to the extent that by doing that, we put them in a challenged position, that's exactly what we should be doing. And we should be doing it in a way that would make them think down the road, do they want to elevate their standards to be part of this community? Putting the pressure on them to elevate their standards is important. Mm. We've made a couple of mistakes in this area. Um, China is a growing nation, and they were willing to participate more vigorously in the International Monetary mm -hmm. Fund. We would have had to give them more voting rights to do so, but they would have put more money into it. Instead, Congress wouldn't reform the rules of the IMF to let China have a bigger role. So China just took their ball and said, we're going to form our own development bank. And they've done that on their own because we wouldn't, bring them in to the network. Um, if we had ratified the Law of the Sea Treaty, the United States, um, that would give us an additional legal angle to argue against what China is doing with respect to island expansion. But we, we, didn't, we chose not to ratify it. So that's one less lever we have to challenge them. The last thing that I, I think we can do that's an effective challenge is India it can be a very good partner for us right now. And if you're going to pick a partner in, in Asia that you would mm -hmm. want to have as a good partner on cyber, on military. The Indian military does more joint exercises with the U.S. than they do with anybody else. And that's a relatively new phenomenon because the Congress party that had been, you know, kind of the controlling party in India had this non-aligned tradition. But, but PM Modi is more willing to work in a more significant mm -hmm. way. Indian shipbuilders were just in the United States looking at shipbuilding joint, uh, joint exercise. If I'm going to, if I want a partner in cyber, I would love to have India as a partner in cyber. And, um, you know, there's some challenges. That won't yeah. happen fast, but I think they can be an effective ally as we're in, uh, in Asia worrying about China. And Congress um, does, in addition to the budget and the other items mentioned, I, I, I passed out of my committee unanimously, which in this day and age is almost unheard of. Yeah. <laughs> every Republican, every Democrat for my cybersecurity bill and information sharing bill with liability protections to share the malicious codes, government to the private sector, private to government, and then private to private with liability protections. We passed it out of the House with 355 votes. It's sort of, and I, I'm not blaming you, it's languishing in the Senate, and it's time for action yeah. so that we can, you know, this will help better defend our networks both in the federal government and in the private sector if we can simply move forward. And the, the White House is supportive. Yeah, and can I say, uh, that bill is a bill that the Senate likes, so that it, it is languishing. You're right. And it's, it, the languishing is, we like this bill. It is bipartisan. It would do something that needs to be done. We probably won't do another cyber bill anytime soon. So should we do this, this bill that we all think is good, or are there, are there areas in cyber that haven't been addressed that we should try mm -hmm. to add into it too? That's the issue that we're kind of grappling with. But I do think the, the good news, I think for all of us, is that Leader McConnell is really focused on we got to get a cyber bill done. So yeah. I, I, I think That's good will. to hear. So I'm going to invite audience members to come forward. I'll ask, uh, there's a, I'll ask one question while you're lining up. My dad spent seven years in war, in World War II in Korea, and I asked him what was the hardest lesson you had to learn from, and he said the hardest lesson was to reinforce your advance, not your retreat. 
And so there is one place where we're making advances right now. It seems in Latin America. And um, if you could, we got a long line up here, but if you could briefly address that. Uh, I know, you, Mike, you spent some time in Mexico recently, and, and Tim's had a great, great experience down there. Well, Keith, I, I chair also the U.S.-Mexico Interparliamentary Group, so we meet with their Congress, and Pemex reform was a huge uh, topic. Uh, and I'm gl glad to say that they just had a successful uh, bids for contracts in energy production. I think that's going to lift the Mexican economy. It's going to help with the immigration issue. Uh, the, the stronger they are as an ally, the better off. There are some uh, countries in Latin America that concern me. Venezuela, obviously, the Iran connection. Yeah. Um, Argentina going very socialistic and Brazil um, being hostile to our uh, businesses down there. Um, but I think overall in terms of armed conflict, as, as Tim mentioned, uh, I think it's, it's, it's going in a better direction. The, the other factor that's huge in the Americas is the normalization with Cuba. I strongly support it. And it, the interesting thing is it's important vis-a-vis U.S.-Cuba, but as I travel in Latin America, so many leaders in the region say, you have no idea how many the opportunities this will open up for the U.S. throughout the Americas because to the extent the U.S. and Cuba were frozen, we always kind of had to stick up for the little guy against Uncle Sam. But the fact that you're having that normalization discussion takes that issue as a point of conflict and kind of moves it aside. So institutions like the OAS that have frankly been pretty ineffective, largely because of the debate over Cuba now can maybe achieve some, you know, some critical mass and, and do some good. So I do think the Cuba process, which will assume its own pace, but it's only going to be a forward pace. You know, the pace of it will be to TBD, but it's only going forward. It's not going backwards. I think that's going to open up some real opportunities. So we're going to have a very brief period of question and answer. I wonder if you could each ask a question uh, really quickly and let them respond. Okay. I might. I have two-part question. One. Make it a one-part. <laughs> is there is is there no way that we can uh, convince Saudi Arabia uh, to take in more refugees? And what is the reason that China is going after our personal things rather than you know higher level? And you, uh, regarding uh, Russia's support of Assad and the uh, intention of fighting ISIS, how much legitimacy is there to Russia's support of Syria? in fighting ISIS, and what threats are posed to U.S. interests, and what are the benefits to the U.S. provided by Putin's support of Assad? So, well, Putin said he was going in to defeat ISIS, but when you look at 85 percent of the target packages, it's non-ISIS related. He's, he's killing the very force, the Sunni Air Force, that we need to, to uh, defeat ISIS itself, and that's the Sunni moderate Arab rebel forces. And he's doing that because he's propping up Assad and defending Assad. And it's a geopolitical power play. He's calling checkmate on us and taking over the ports on the Mediterranean side. His influence of power geopolitically has just stretched, and it makes Russia a stronger, more powerful force. I think the, the, the area, our Venn diagram doesn't overlap with Russia very much in terms of our motivations. But the, the motivation that we talked about earlier, the worry about foreign fighters returning to each of our countries and the desire for stability, that is an overlap. Um, and so we, we ought to try to play in that overlap to the extent we can. Clearly, we need to communicate so that our aircraft are not running into challenges with each other. Um, but we also need to communicate about the joint desire that we have for stability in Syria and what could be a next step forward for Syria. I think most people know what that next step is, that it would be a government without Assad but with the Alawites who have been kind of the ruling class, who've been running the municipal waste treatment systems mm -hmm. and the government institutions, they have to know they're not going to get slaughtered in a post-Assad post government, that there would be a role for them. And what does a post-Assad Syria look like? And could Russia help a graceful exile of Assad? I don't think they have the intention to do that right now. And I'll just also, the common interest I saw with the Boston bombing when the Russians mm -hmm. warned us, and it was almost, the warning yeah. was not taken seriously. And they did try to warn us about a, a radical Islamist in our country. With respect to the China part of it, I mean, I don't know that I've got a you know, great uh, answer. And if I had one, it would be because I had intel that I couldn't share anyway about why uh, China you know, has kind of switched to the personal data. But my, my intuition is that, uh, you know, 
maybe, maybe we caught on and realized we should really put up intense protection, um, uh, you know, if, if somebody's trying to go in and get information about weapon systems and there were, there were other kinds of information that were more vulnerable. And so you gather all that information and you may not even know what you're going to do with it, but you gather it all and then you figure out what you're going to do with it. Uh, but that, that policy shift in terms of what they're going after is a real notable one. And a quick answer, the, the, I, I agree with the comment about the Gulf states. I thought we should put more yeah. pressure on them to take these refugees. Uh, the second cyber piece, we're seeing a shift. Big data theft is very sophisticated and they're very interested in espionage and compromising uh, Americans, particularly Americans uh, you know, in the federal government. Now, the, the answers, I mean, technology solutions, are there. this was an insider credential deal. You can stop intrusions. Mm -hmm. This was almost not quite Snowden, but somebody, they got credentials of a former employee and that's how they got access. And they were sitting in our networks for over a year before we even detected it. So we, we got some work to do yeah. on the I technology. got a confusing signal back there. Are we, do we have extra time? I'm, I'm fine. All right. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Yeah, that's it. One I, I minute. Love, I love the questions. I mean, no, the questions done, are good huh? stuff. Hey, okay. All right, oh, 10 minutes? Oh, great. All right, so, yes, sir. Okay. Um, I'm a student here at UT and study terrorism and counterterrorism a lot um, as a tactic used by organizations and networks to influence um, political reform and mobilization. And um, it seems like groups and networks like ISIS have um, succeeded in doing so, really causing the United States to focus heavily on it, um, both militarily and financially. And um, the media has kind of perpetuated this problem um, by showing terrorism to be this um, crazy issue um, that uh, it's exciting to show people in the headlines and everything. And is there a fundamental difference that, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, a fundamental, fundamentally different approach that we have to take to tackling the problem of terrorism? I think the ideological struggle Larry and I talk about, I think winning the war of ideology, uh, combating violent extremism also in this country, we put little focus and priority. We spend billions to send drone strikes. That will not kill an ideology. We spend a, a lot of money to keep threats out of the United States, but I marked up a bill out of my committee to combat violent extremism, um, and I think that needs to be a focus. We have. Over the internet, it's gone viral. There are guys out of Raqqa, Syria, sending directives to thousands of followers in the United States, 200,000 ISIS tweets per day. We've arrested over 70 ISIS followers in the United States just this last year because of this new phenomenon, this new threat, uh, over not just the foreign fighter, but the internet uh, radicalization that we need to get to the root cause of that to, to stop it. And, and just one last point. I'd yeah. We did take out Junaid Hussein with an airstrike, mm -hmm. but he's going to have other uh, disciples. They are talking in dark platforms as I speak that even with a court order, we can't see what they're saying. And if you can't see what they're communicating, it's very difficult to stop it. On, on the strategy, I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. Here's something that really disappoints me, and I've been kind of a, obsessed about it. Um, on the 8th of October, we started into the 15th month of this war against ISIL without a vote of Congress. Um, the president has asserted that the 9-11 authorization that was passed in 2001 covers this. I, I look at that authorization, I even look at the broader interpretations of it, and I have a hard time seeing how that was meant to cover this. Um, I think the Constitution's pretty clear that, you know, we shouldn't be at war without a vote of Congress. Um, and, and it's not just because the Constitution says it, there's a value that's at stake, which is if you're going to ask people to risk their lives, then it should be on the basis of a consensus that this national mission is worth ordering you to risk your lives for. We haven't had that debate. So part of the strategy is forcing the White House to come and lay out a strategy and then having the, you know, the, the relevant committees pepper their witnesses to death with questions and then refine the strategy and say, this is going to be our strategy against ISIL or against other non-state actors. We haven't really been doing that. What Congress has been doing is kind of been uh, like sitting up in the stands at a UT game and complaining, well, the coach shouldn't run that play on third and five. They should run another play. You know, we just want to bang on the White House, but we're not the fans. We're the owners. Mm -hmm. And we haven't done what we are supposed to do, in my view, in forcing them to articulate a strategy and then refining it and revising it and blessing it because we got 3,500 people over in the 
in the theater just against ISIL right now risking their lives. Let's go over here. That's a good point. Um, hi, I was just wondering what uh, you guys thought about um, ending the ban on U.S. Um, crude oil exports, um, how that will um, potentially impact Russia and OPEC's um, influence in the world. I mean, I, I favored. I, I introduced the bill on foreign affairs and uh, energy and commerce. We actually voted and passed it in the House. Uh, it's good for a couple, it's great for jobs in the economy, particularly here in Texas, but from a geopolitical foreign policy standpoint, uh, the EU sent us a private letter asking us to lift the ban because of their dependence on Russian energy. The Ukraine wants us to lift the ban. So I think it's a great, it's a win-win. You know, it provides uh, jobs in the economy here, and it's a great foreign policy strategy. I, I am a huge believer that the you know the energy future should be cleaner tomorrow than today, and just progressively, incrementally so. Uh, but I also uh, am a believer that both for LNG and for petroleum, uh, for for critical national security reasons, uh, allowing exports makes sense. There's probably three categories in Congress right now. There's, there would be one that would say export as if it were a pencil or a paperclip. There would be another that would say no exports never. And then there's a category that say export for national security purposes. But for the reasons you stated, one of the best things we could do to help uh, to help further, you know, uh, reduce the overdependence that some of these nations have on Russia is to give them other alternatives. And so exporting or helping them with their technologies, going in and showing them how to do some of the things that we're doing can also help. And the Middle East dependency that drives a bad yeah. foreign right. policy. Right. Yeah. right here. Hi, my name is Robert Ferris. I'm a postdoctoral fellow in the Energy Institute here. Um, thanks to all of you for being here. Um, so that's one part of my background. In addition, I also spent my entire childhood in the Middle East. I grew up in Saudi Arabia, and I'm half Lebanese. I'm a Lebanese-American. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been frustrated by the fact that it seems pervasively the political view on the ground there is that everything is kind of either the U.S. or Israel's fault, regardless of whether or not. Yeah. You know, maybe we had one small action like 20 or 30 years ago that kind of influenced this chain of events, but still we're kind of treated as kind of, you know, the enemy. And that's just that's not just amongst ISIS and kind of their propaganda videos that they're pushing through social media. That seems to be the the popular opinion on the ground that mm -hmm. I've seen, and I try and combat that personally. And I've been I found that to be very difficult. And so my my question is, how can we as a nation kind of overcome that challenge in the Middle East? I mean, I, I'm so glad you raised that. I wanted to bring up something about this earlier. Um, yeah, there is kind of a view, and I I hear in the United States too sometimes. That if something good is going on, then we gonna, we're gonna we take credit for it all. If something bad is going on, it's got to be all our fault. And if you get in the Middle East, and I was with dealing with some folks in the uh, Saudi government last week, you know, if if we do things, then we're at fault because we do them. And then if we choose not to do them, oh well, gosh, now the U.S. is abandoning us. I mean, there's always going to be a narrative that's going to try to put some of the blame on the U.S.'s shoulders. Has the U.S. made mistakes in the region? Absolutely. Have those mistakes created real challenges? Absolutely. When you hear every Republican presidential candidate except Jeb Bush say the Iraq war was a mistake, there's a recognition that the U.S. has done some things wrong. However, what we're dealing with in the Middle East is not primarily that the U.S. has done things wrong. We're dealing with, with, uh, with governmental systems that are corrupt, that are oppressive, top-down systems that don't give people uh, pass where they think they can succeed in legitimate areas, and so often if they want to succeed or be somebody or belong, they've got to do things that, uh, you know, join jihadist groups or others. So there is a deep dysfunction in the region, and there has also been an unwillingness to kind of speak truthfully about it. Mm -hmm. You go to the Middle East, you know, leaders will tell you privately, hey, you know, we're really against some of these things that are going mm -hmm. on in other countries, but they won't speak out publicly until recently. Now, there's been some changing of this. You know, look how quickly Saudi Arabia went into Yemen when Yemen was under uh, threat of destabilization by the Iranian-backed Houthis. Well, why didn't they act so significantly with respect to the ISIL threat? They could. Then the answer is because yeah. they're Sunnis. Right. Yeah. They're and, not going to go and hit Sunni extremists when they got Shias in their back. They're going to hit the Shia first. Yeah. And to your initial point, we, we, have, we need a doctrine and a strategy. There's a lot of confusion, I think, in that part of the world. Who, who's your friend? Who's your ally? And, and there's a tremendous amount of confusion. And I, you know, who's worse, the Shia extremist or the Sunni extremist? They're, they're both enemies of the United States. They chant Shias, chant death to America in Iran and death to Israel. And then, of course, the Sunni extremist, ISIS, uh, we, are, we are the enemy. 
and, and the concern I have is, is the growing extremism throughout the world. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, the narrative's been that the, the threat is to downplay the threat, that it's gotten better, not worse. And when, when I get my briefings, it does not demonstrate that. It, it demonstrates an increasingly dangerous place in the world. Well, I'm going to wrap this up I, with one little uh, observation in the Tehran Daily Paper the other day, an optimistic uh, cartoon where there was a graffiti that said, Death to America, and the protesters scratched it out and said, Life imprisonment. So we're making progress. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for coming. I'm afraid we're out of time. The commutation of <laughs> sentence. Hey, that was good. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. you're a great yeah. guy. Hey, you're real balanced.